This can't be right, right? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. Today, I'm doing an interview here, Sean, with Emily Drabinsky, who is a candidate for the president of the American Library Association. That's right, ALA. Emily, do you want to maybe first start telling us a little bit about why you like libraries, why you're involved with libraries, and moving into why you want to be the president of the ALA. Sure. So it's 2000, I guess. And I'm working at a magazine called Lucky. Okay, it was a magazine about shopping. So I had been working as a fact checker and Lucky was hiring for its launch and you got paid $5 more an hour at Lucky than you did at TV Guide. So I hopped over there and worked on the magazine. And I accidentally published the number for Barney's New York on a spread about Saks Fifth Avenue. And it was as if a world historical tragedy had occurred. People were so angry with me. I spent many sleepless nights. And on one of the last ones, I thought, I can't give my life to this. I cannot have this kind of a convulsion of emotion around Barney's New York. I don't care about purses or shoes or anything. And so I thought, what could I do that would not be about shopping. And they were hiring at the public library in Manhattan. And I applied and I got the job. And they told me upon hire that if I started library school, they would pay for part of my education. I wasn't born yesterday. So I signed right up and went to Syracuse University. I did an online program. My first class was blown away because the library project is unbelievable, right? We're going to collect the sum of human knowledge, we're going to organize it, and we're going to help you find it. And I was sort of staggered by that. And it was so much more important than shoes and bags. And I loved it immediately. And it's where I've made my home since then. So you got pushed into the library profession by accidentally sharing information about a corporation's contact info and a magazine and pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I was like, Oh, I want to do you know, not in the like do-gooder thing where like, I just want to do a good thing for the planet. Although I do want to do good things for the planet, but in a like, I don't want my life to be purely in service to capital. And it isn't anymore. And that is a better life. Right. Yeah. So shoes have been a smaller part of your life since then. I have one pair of shoes, Sean. Yeah. That's really pragmatic. I think that's a great feature for an ALA president, a very pragmatic amount of shoes. It's a pair of sneakers. I'm very much like whoever that congresswoman was who did that filibuster in her sneakers. I have one pair of sneakers. I used to wear clogs, but I have a bunion. But I don't know how much you want to talk about that. <laughs> as much as it comes up, <laughs> sounds great. Okay. I'd like to hear about your opponent's shoe collection. Oh, yeah. I've never seen it <laughs> since, you know, it's the pandemic. So I've only ever seen his face and the office wall behind him on Zoom. So I don't know much about or I didn't know much. I know a little bit now about the ALA president role. Is this like a one year term? You serve one year as president elect and then one year as president and then one year as immediate past president. Cool. And so it's a one term thing? One term thing. One year. Yeah. Cool. I'm really interested in just how these different roles and in institutions of power exist, what the sort of powers are and what the benefit is of getting a union person, a left person in those roles. 
what is the ALA president role like? And how could someone like yourself use that position to positive effect? So when something happens about libraries, there's a scandal, right? So right now in the United States, there's just nonstop, constant barrage of book challenges, organized right-wing attack on public institutions, right? We're seeing that. And one of the ways that attack is manifesting right now is through these organized challenges to books inside school libraries and inside public libraries. So that's happening. And the press calls the American Library Association on the phone and talks to them. And the person often that they'll call is the president. And so that president will tell a story to the public and tell a story to the membership about what's happening around issues of information access and public spaces inside of libraries. So that's, I think, where I see the president playing a role is as driving the narrative for people within the association and outside of it about what libraries are about, what they're for, why they matter, and how, if the state would invest in them, would reinvest in public institutions, libraries being one of those, but also childcare and healthcare and roads and bridges and green building initiatives and all those things. If the state would invest in libraries, a lot of the problems we see would be solved, right? Libraries need to be seen as a terrain of struggle for those of us on the left. And so that's a story I think I can tell pretty convincingly. And I see this campaign as a campaign where I'm telling that story as much as possible, because I don't know if I'm going to win or not. And if I win, it's a big platform for a year to talk about the absolutely crucial role of collective power and building power through workplace organizing in order to move the needle on the things that I think a lot of us care about right now. I'm curious about what the organizing and what work conditions in libraries are like, what librarians and library techs, like what sort of needs do workers in libraries typically face? What sort of barriers do they face towards having balanced, healthy lives that are serving the purpose of the library and so on? Like what sort of worker struggles exist within the library space? So I come to this question after spending most of my career, the vast majority of my career in union positions. Right now, I work at the City University of New York, but I spent 10 years at Long Island University, Brooklyn. So I was a faculty librarian there. And that union was the first union of private sector faculty in the United States. So it had a deep and rich heritage as a labor organizing site. I was on the library faculty when we were coming to the end of a contract negotiation in, I have to check the date, but 2016, I think, 15 maybe, and we were locked out by our employer. So in a strike, workers get together and they withhold their labor from the institution until the institution bends. In a lockout, you can think of it as sort of a management strike. So management fired all of us on Labor Day weekend at the end of a contract negotiation and said, you're locked out, you cannot come to work, you will not get paid, your health insurance is canceled until you agree to the terms of the contract offer that we've put before you. And it was a life-changing experience for me, the first time I had been on the receiving end of enormous power, right? Like power enacted against me, and it really transformed how I think about how to get things done and what matters the most to people inside of institutions. And so galvanized by that, you know, when you don't have health insurance or a salary and you live in New York and you're just a person trying to check out books and fix the stapler and teach people how to synthesize information, things that are social goods and management comes at you like that. 
you realize how tenuous your status is, right? How contingent all of it is on a sort of labor piece that management's really invested in maintaining at the expense of workers, things like salary and safe working conditions and things like that. And so that's where I'm sort of coming from. It's not that I think unions are just a good thing. It's that I think that they're essential for securing all of the public goods, not just my individual salary and time off and those kinds of things. And so right now we see library workers under attack like I've never heard before. Since I've been campaigning, I've been talking to library workers across the country in public libraries, school libraries, academic libraries. Someone told me a story about a frontline library worker who was just working at their job and one of these Unmask Our Kids rallies happened and the parents had organized their children into going into the library and spitting on the library workers. So that's the kind of thing people are facing alongside the things that all of us are facing, right? Which is like increasing management control over our lives, the kind of mechanization of labor processes that restrict our freedom in the workplace and are bent on sort of extracting the most from us for the least amount of pay. And those are issues that all workers, I think, are facing and definitely facing in libraries. And the solution to that is organizing your workplace and building the skills necessary to do that for groups of library workers all over in sort of every context. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by public lending libraries being really great, if you think about it. Look, we all love libraries. They're self-evidently good. Access to information is good. Everyone loves books. Access to lots of books. Maybe when you were a kid, you would take out the UFO books or the Sasquatch books or the knock-knock joke books, I spy books, skateboarding magazines. Depends on your demographic and the time. For me, that was my elementary school library experience. I just listed everything personally that I took out. It was all about those UFO books. Every one of my school library I read cover to cover, sometimes more than once. After I finished taking out all the books, I'd go back and take out another UFO book, magic book, scary story book, whatever, maybe Guinness Book of World Records. Anyways, that's enough about my personal library practices as a child. What I'm really here to talk about here in the context of this ad is how libraries are, when you think about it, one of the coolest things in the world. It's about everyone having access to information. It's about people having access to read the things they want without having to pay to buy books to be able to access information. It's a public space where there's communal experiences, shared property arrangements, where people are meant to take turns to get access to whatever they want. There's something so cool and so beautiful about that. So when we got word that there was a leftist political candidate for the American Library Association president who is trying to draw attention to the value of libraries for the left, that piqued our interest and we had to get them on the show. Because this episode is brought to you by Just Think About It, libraries. It's so cool. There's so few things that are that good in society. Anyone off the street, they can walk in like, oh, I want to check my email right this way. Where, what other building do you have that experience? Oh, right. You want to check your email? Sure. You want to charge your phone right this way? We've got a spot for that. Yeah. Are you interested in learning anything about history while you're here? You know, libraries, they're just unfuckwithable. They're so incredible. They need to be fought for. They need to be defended, they need to be strengthened, and they need to be supplemented by complementary institutions in the future that build off the same logic. So anyways, yeah, all that being said, that's the sponsor of today's show. Libraries being really great and cool and awesome. Public libraries are one of the redeeming aspects of our society. Now back to our show. 
You mentioned before the ALA president, part of the benefit of this role is the sort of narrative power that you can have Mm -hmm. by weighing in on things like books being banned. Is that the extent of the president's power or are there other things that you're seeking to do with that position? Sure. You've got a little bit of money. So you got to use some of your money to fund initiatives that matter to you. So, you know, I have had my life transformed by labor organizers who've taught me how to do things like have an organizing conversation, make lists of the people in my workplace and assess those lists, how to work in groups to transform complaints into demands, how to plan a campaign and how to think about connecting internal labor issues to bigger issues in the community, right? So I think part of what I would do if elected is to use the small pot of money they would give me to fund my personal initiatives would be about building those skills for people, setting up training for everybody so that all of us know how to organize and what that means and the difference between organizing and mobilizing. So I got most of my training through Labor Notes, which is a democratic labor project that's super cool. If you don't know about it, you should check it out. So I'd love to just give them some cash to come and run some of their troublemaker schools for library workers who want to take back power for themselves and their colleagues in the workplace. So there's that. And then you run the meetings and you set the agendas. And I'm real good at running meetings and I'm good at setting agendas. And when you set the agenda, you can say, these are the things that we're going to care about. And for me, those would be issues that have to do with library workers. Because I think if you solve problems in the workplace, a lot of good comes from that. That's not just about salary right? But you have public libraries that work better because people are compensated well and they feel respected and they have control over their lives inside of their jobs, right? So everybody in the community benefits when your children's librarian isn't hand-to-mouth having to get jobs on the side just to pay her rent in a big city, right? We don't want her doing that. We want her focusing on being a children's librarian, exercising her expertise to select materials and plan programming and connect with our kids. That stuff, if we value it, right? Like our library experiences are determined by the working experiences of the people who work in libraries. And so, you know, translating that for people and bringing the sort of union difference to be, you know, that kind of bumper sticker person, but, you know, explaining and narrativizing the union difference for people so that we can transform our workplaces, thereby transforming ourselves and transforming our world. That's my big goal. But when you ask what my real power would be, I think I would get like $75,000 and I'd use it to do some labor training, some organizing training, because I think we could all use that. A lot of these roles, as I've looked into stuff over the years, of places where there are these roles of institutional power, mm-hmm. often one of the big things you get is, oh yeah, there's a $50,000 a year budget that you can use discretionarily. And I find that appealing if there's ways to get access to institutional funds and then put them towards things that are useful and matter. Mm-hmm. It seems like a good thing to do. Yeah, totally. Give it to people who need it and do good stuff with it. Is this a role that has a history of lefty rabble-rousing in it? Is this an unusual trajectory for this role to take if you were to win? No, I don't think so. I mean, librarians are often rabble-rousers, and they're really effective rabble-rousers because library skills, like the capacity to make a calendar of reference desk shifts, that skill is the same skill as making a campaign calendar, right? So we're often on the front line of community struggles because we just know how to do that. Like I'm super organized, right? And it's easy to organize me and I'm good at organizing others. 
and that sort of thing. But there's also, you know, when it's a profession that is for the most part committed to public education, is committed to equitable access for communities, it's committed to sharing, right? Like think about something like interlibrary loan. That's a system of sharing materials between libraries so that we don't all have to buy every book. We can borrow it from another library and then you can use it for a little while and then you return it and it goes back to the home library and then maybe somebody there uses it. You know, a really highly developed system of sharing. So in my vision of a socialist future, our systems for sharing are robust and everybody uses them. So there's a lot of left history when I first started library school, Mitch Friedman was the president of ALA, and his tenure was focused on worker rights as well, and the welfare and working conditions of library workers. So I think about his tenure when I think about a potential one for me. Pat Schumann is a Pat's president from the early 2000s who fought really hard, difficult, good fights around filtering in libraries and the sort of weaponization of the protection of children, you know, as a way of shutting down access to information for people. So like what we're seeing in the book bannings, that's just a story that comes up and a fight that comes up and ALA has fought it before. And the current president of ALA, Patty Wong, super committed to environmental justice and climate justice. That's the focus of her campaign. The one coming up, Lessa Palayo Lozada, she's built her platform around the dignity of every worker in a library. So there's a history of it. What I don't think there has been is a commitment to a vision of collective organizing and collective power. And so that I think is the difference. And I do think there's been a sort of like in every part of public life, there has been a sort of corporatization and privatization of functions. And so the association has its commitments to entrepreneurship week and that sort of thing that, of course, there are many constituencies, but I think a notion of collective power and the skills it takes to build that, that would be the thing I'd be bringing that was new. Yeah, really interesting. I want to talk about, we've touched on it briefly, some of the ideal vision of the library. The library is a place of collective access, collective knowledge, Mm -hmm. giving people access to things. And it's one of the few places in society where there's legitimately public space that isn't, you don't need to use a credit card or money to get access to experiences. And there's something so beautiful and rare and special about that. I guess before we talk about how this vision can be or has been in some ways degraded by these corporate partnerships, what is the vision of what a library should be? What else is beautiful about libraries to you? So at least where I live in New York City, a library is the only place you can go in and use the bathroom without buying anything. So I have elaborate, complex ideas about what libraries should be. I'm an academic librarian, so I have ideas about the role of the library in knowledge production and dissemination. And my current research project looks at the way that U.S. global empire has extended its reach through the export of classification and cataloging systems. And you know, so I have highly complex ideas about libraries. And But I also think at the end of the day, they are institutions where it is warm in the winter and cool in the summer. There's light, a place to sit down, a drinking fountain. You can use the bathroom. And that's a non-commercial experience. So not only do you not have to pay money to check out a book, although everyone's always telling me about how they often rent books at libraries, like the borrowing thing. It's like we have the language of 
purely commercial social relations so deeply embedded in us that it's people always tell me they rent a book from the library but anyway that is what is special about a library especially now i mean i live inside of my phone right since the pandemic especially i'm on zoom all the time i'm staring at my phone the assault of advertising it's like so infiltrated even my private time in the morning or my private time in the bathroom right and so think about the number of spaces you can go to where you're not being pulled into consumer life and the only place is the library maybe the classroom and those spaces are subject to all kinds of commercial intrusions right your coca-cola campus for your school or you know ala has this dollar general initiative where if you're near a dollar general you can get some special thing at your library but for the most part it's a non-commercial public space that is indoors and it is open to everyone and i think any more complex vision of the institution that I would have is at this particular moment when I think the crisis in public space and public goods is so acute. Sort of the only thing I care about right now is being able to go inside, sit down for a minute and then leave. Yeah. On the subject of public washrooms and how that relates to the library, it makes me think there's sort of two divergent ways to look at the same issue. I don't know which is preferable, actually, which is like either reinforcing and building and expanding library style access to washrooms and things like that through the library system, like say boosting library budgets to make sure that there's even more bathrooms, even more spaces or something like that, versus the creation of complementary systems of public access where, because wouldn't it also kind of be nice if libraries weren't the only place where you could use the washroom (laughs) without paying money? Tell me about it, right? Totally. Which is why the narrative I would tell is that we need both greater public investment in the library as an institution, and then greater public investments in all social infrastructures, right? I've talked to librarians who during COVID, they just showed up for work one day and the state had given them, you know, a thousand COVID test kits to hand out without even talking to them about it. And it's just overwhelming. And that's a working condition that is really unacceptable and that library workers are sick to death of and tired of and can't stand, right? But the state is doing that because it has so reduced the nodes of circulation to the post office and the library, that's it, right? And so that's a problem. And so it's not that libraries need more money so they can do a better job of distributing test kits. It's that they need more money so they can do a better job of being libraries. And then also we need huge reinvestments in the public sector so that you aren't reliant on two increasingly creaky sorts of infrastructures to distribute all public goods. So yeah, I mean, I agree, we should be able to use the bathroom all over. We should have investments in public parks that make it possible to get a drink in the winter because, you know, you can get water fountains that don't freeze in the winter. So we need those. And we also need libraries and we also need parks and we need schools and we need all of those things and linking the struggle of library workers. And part of why I'm trying to run a campaign that gets the left to pay more attention to libraries is that if we can see our future as linked to the future of all of these other public institutions, we can be part of a bigger mass movement for the public good rather than fighting these small battles, which is, you know, where the work gets done. So like making the link between though that union we're going to organize so that management will stop making us distribute test kits and Narcan and needle exchange and being the only (laughs) node for any of that when we're tired and we really just wanted to be librarians, connecting that local struggle to sort of bigger mass movements for a better world for all of us, which maybe sounds corny, but I'm earnest in that way. 
Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is also brought to you by Usufructian Property Logic of the Library, posing a solution to both the social crises of inequality and a solution to the ecological crisis and overuse of materials. So there's not a lot of places in society where people share quite as nicely and quite as organized as they do in the library system. And when you think about the fact that our society is facing an ecological crisis where materials are being overused and a social crisis where materials aren't reaching the people who need them to survive. So we've got both overproduction and underdistribution. The solution to both of these problems lies within the usufructian lending library logic. So usufruct is a name for property relationships where you're allowed to use and take benefit from things, but you're not allowed to destroy them. Lending libraries work on the circulation of goods to anyone who wants them and the return when they're not being used to some sort of shared holding space. That usufructian logic can have a massive positive benefit on both the social side, which is distributing things to people that they need when they need it, and the ecological side in requiring less production to bring abundance to more people. This potential solution to these problems is embedded in these social property relationships of the library that already exist. This is something that we can take inspiration from the lending library and from it build a more ecological and just society. If you want to hear more about this idea, we have a three-part series of our podcast on library socialism. You can find it on our website, seriouslywrong.com. But just like really think about this if you haven't before. We've got these major crises, ecological and social crises. And we've got property relationships under capitalism that sustain and uphold these crises. Then we have alternative potential property arrangements, which we can find examples of in the real world in the place of public libraries that if we found ways to expand these alternative conceptions of property into more areas of our lives, we are at once addressing material concerns of ecological scarcity and abundance and concerns of inequality, deprivation, poverty, and so on on the other. There is a potential within the logic of the lending library to create a society that provides abundance for everyone beyond our wildest dreams while using less energy, while creating less pollution, while requiring less resource throughputs to do so. Library lending is a foundational and important aspect of a future utopian post-scarcity society, and that's just one of many reasons to support currently existing public libraries and librarians as they push for better work conditions, better public services, and to create a society that doesn't focus everything good on one specific thing called the library and make the librarians do everything that's good in the entire society, but to actually distribute the beautiful librariness of the public library across society. Now back to our interview. Library workers in our podcast community have raised this concept of vocational awe before, Mm. which is sort of, Mm -hmm. I might be butchering this, but the basic idea that I remember on this is the idea that with libraries as an institution and library workers, they do all these great things. They're often like the service of last resort. Mm -hmm. It extends beyond lending out books and like you said, access to Narcan, access to testing kits and all this stuff sort of thrown at them where there's this kind of paradox. Like I want to underline and be like, yeah, libraries are great. And library workers are great, but then you also don't want to create a situation where it's assumed that you can just stuff everything that society needs 
and doesn't get <laughs> through systems into libraries and like, oh yeah, we're going to train librarians to do minor surgery to like relieve the hospital system. Like we're totally, yeah. You know, Fabazi Itar's work around vocational awe has really touched a nerve with people for exactly that reason. It's like, yes, I am amazing and the library is great, but I also am not working here out of the goodness of my heart. And I need to be compensated for that labor and I can't do everything, right? And so that's why I think bringing a labor organizing model to this problem. I was reading the internet today and someone was writing about their library has a grant where they're giving out bags of food to people in the community and they run out of food really quickly and people drive from an hour away to get food, right? From the library. And this is both, a good thing that the library is participating in giving food bags out and also is so painful to think about that problem, right? That the problem here is not that the library is giving out food and that's an overreach. I mean, that's part of the problem, but the real problem is that so many people are hungry. And so when we try to solve the problem in the library by sort of endlessly expanding the scope of services to try to compensate for a total abandonment of the public, of course, workers are going to get frustrated by that. Of course, they're going to quit in large numbers. Of course, they're going to be really cranky to you when you come in and ask where the bathroom is. They're going to suffer. Frontline library workers have a front row seat to the crumbling public sector, right? You see people in the worst moments of their lives, all produced by a state that has abandoned us. The problems are so vast and they're not located inside of the library and the solutions aren't going to be located inside of the library. So the frustration that we have is often directed at the wrong target, maybe, that the library should say no to handing out test kits. And the real problem is the library should not be asked to hand out test kits because there should be a robust public health sector that can keep us safe without having to encroach on what libraries do, which is essentially about information and circulating it. It's dire times, I think. And library workers know that better than probably almost anyone else. Like think about school teachers, librarians, emergency healthcare workers. Those are the people who know what's happening right now. And none of it's good. This reminds me also of one of the things that David Graeber in his book, Bullshit Jobs, Mm -hmm. says, if your job seems like it might be rewarding, then you have to be punished somehow. If you're doing something like (laughs) helping the public access information, well, then you might feel good about your job. So we'll make sure that you don't get paid very much and that convoys come in to spit on you and stuff just to even things Mm -hmm. out because my life is so hollow in this desk job and stuff. We need to punish the childcare workers, the library workers, the teachers, and so on. Totally. And also we need them to demonstrate their value in order to be funded. Is the library doing a good enough job at teaching my child how to enter the realm of public reading? I have a 13-year-old and he had his first encounter with a young adult librarian. He and I went in to get his library card together. And I said, oh, here's my kid. He needs a library card. And the librarian looked at him and said, how old are you? And he said, 13. And then she looked at me and said, he and I can take it from here and nudged me out of the picture so that she could sort of inaugurate him into the realm of public reading. And I was like, this relationship that just happened, this moment is so magical for him and for me. And she's going to put some books in his hand and I'm going to have nothing to do with that. And 
as a reader myself, just knowing that he now has access to being able to pick the next book you read and being able to do that without any supervision. That moment is worth funding and it's worth preserving and it's worth building a little fence around and making sure that that can happen and making sure that that can happen without that librarian having to take a break to distribute Narcan to someone who's suffering, which doesn't mean that libraries shouldn't have Narcan available. It means that we should do a better job as a public at taking care of each other so that people aren't dying. So that's how I think about that. Yeah, it's such a beautiful, just the access to knowledge. There's so few things in society that are set up in such a wholesome cheery, just the premise of getting people access to information, getting people access to the things that they want to read. There's something so top shelf about that to me. I just think it's like the best thing ever. Yeah, I work in an academic library. People come in, they need a stapler and I give it to them and then their papers are stapled. It's like, what? I could have spent my life pricing purses, you know, and instead I get to do that. I get to make your day. That's amazing. It's such a gift for me. But, you know, vocational odd, I need the space and support and the working conditions that let me love that instead of resenting it and feeling like that's lost to the demand that I resolve the contradictions of capital at work every day. That's a lot. So I just remembered, I once ran for something. You did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I ran for, for member of parliament in Canada. I was like, you know, no chance of winning small campaign. Mm -hmm. One of my big platform points was based on an observation about libraries, which is that digital ebooks can be lent infinitely because it's ones and zeros turning off and on on computers. So if you had a digital ebook, theoretically, every person on earth could take it out. But I noticed that at my local Mm -hmm. library, when it came to ebooks, it was limited to like five or something like that or four. Mm Um, And I found out it's because libraries have to pay these really expensive licensing fees for ebooks and Mm -hmm. that basically there's this artificial scarcity imposed on libraries. Like if a library is given a physical book, they can lend it out. They've got one book, they lend it out one at a time. That makes sense. But when it comes to the digital realm, there's this enforced scarcity through these corporate partnership type things. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about that, the intellectual property digital lending and these systems of lending that are third-party partnerships to lend out ebooks or access like video libraries and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't negotiate our vendor contracts, so I don't totally understand it. And probably I should have better answers now that I'm on the campaign trail. But for all my talk earlier in our conversation about libraries as sort of outside of normal economic practices, we have to buy things, right? We take public money or private money, depending on the institution, but we take pooled funds and we buy stuff on behalf of a group of people and then share it around with them. So that moment of economic exchange is the piece that you're talking about. What are vendors charging me for it? And what am I organized to push back against? As we sort of move from a physical book where the transaction there is fairly straightforward, I buy it and then I put it on a shelf and then I can lend it out until it falls apart. And then I buy another one the ebook, you have to make it up. You have to invent it. You have to figure out how you're going to monetize it. Are you going to monetize it on like number of views or how many times it circulates? And that's been a problem since the beginning of libraries, right? I won't bore you with the history of indexing in libraries, but how are we going to share things where the intellectual property is sort of immaterial? And so I don't have a whole lot of insights in how to sort of intervene in this exploitations of immaterial economies. But 
it's absurd on its face. And, you know, I do think people need to get compensated for their labor, you know, asking or expecting authors to be the people who don't get paid for their work, like what we've seen happen to musical artists. That's why you essentially have to have an anti-capitalist vision, right? That it isn't enough to just get a better vendor contract or isn't enough to just show that it's absurd. How are we going to build the power necessary to eliminate profit as a motive? Because that's what the publishers are doing. They're trying to extract profit from public funding. And so that's the problem is the profit, not the fact that they have some limits and constraints on the materials that they sell us, which whatever, I could be mad about that, but I also understand it. If those constraints were about recouping the costs necessary to publish books. So I also edit a book series on an independent press that doesn't have a profit motive that side of the house that's not trying to make a profit. And it means that I'm able to publish all kinds of books that have pretty small readerships, books about queer lives and library workers, that kind of stuff. It's like, because there's not a profit motive, there's a lot more flexibility there. I feel like that's kind of a jumbled answer, but I'm not really sure what the answer is beyond abolishing profit, which means abolishing capitalism. But I don't know. I'm just trying to run for president to tell an anti-capitalist story for a year. And wouldn't that be fun? Oh, yeah. Some of these things are long-term goals and conversations, but there's a lot that can be done over the course of the one year and the year buffer on each side and telling different stories. Like, what if I left after three years and what I just said, the problem is profit, right? Which is something I've come to understand through my own life as an activist and as an academic and in political circles and organizing circles. What if in three years that analysis could be shared by a few more people. I would feel like I had done my job. Yeah, well, this is really interesting. There was people who reached out to us, let us know about your campaign. So I'm really glad that we were able to connect and talk about this. Maybe just as we're wrapping up, there's some stuff that we should definitely cover, which is who's eligible to vote? And then when does voting happen? So you have to be a member of the American Library Association to vote. That membership deadline has passed. It was January 28th. If you are a member, voting will open for you online on March 13th, and it will close on April 6th with results to be announced the following week. Cool. And so for people who have missed that this time, is there benefit to signing up for this in the long term? Like this vote happens every year, right? This vote happens every year. We are building power within the association across library types and across library struggles. and you should join us. And if you don't want to join the association, but you want to wait until there's something actionable for you to do, you should just join us. Visit our campaign site. We meet weekly on Thursday nights to shape our analysis of what association power and what institutional power can do for us. And everybody's welcome to those conversations. So join us. Cool. And maybe it'd be good to just hit again here before we wrap up. In the event that you are successful, become the president of the ALA, What is the narrative that you're going to be able to push? What can people expect to see from that? The collective power is necessary to move the needle on any of the things that we care about. And there are techniques and strategies for building and wielding power. And we're going to learn how to do that together. And we have to do it. And the time is now. And it's urgent. And everybody's in. And nobody's out. And we're going to do it together. Sounds sort of sloganeering, but it's really true. I really believe it. I'm a true believer in collective power for public good, which is the slogan for our campaign. 
that's awesome. Well, it was really, really great talking to you. And I wish you the best of luck in this. I hope that you become the president of the ALA. Great talking to you too, Sean. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Solidarity. So that was my interview with Emily Drabinsky. Do check out our website at emilydrabinsky.com. And if you're voting in the ALA elections, hey, Emily seems pretty great, huh? Maybe she's the one to vote for this time. This has been the Seriously Wrong Podcast. You can find us at srslywrong.com, seriouslywrong.com, or on Patreon, patreon.com slash seriouslywrong. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. You can also reach us by the contact form on our website. You can leave an audio message via our website or by Facebook Messenger. That's always fun. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed our interview this week. And we'll be back soon. Aaron will be back soon next time. His voice will be on the next episode. That's my 100% guarantee. You know, going an entire episode is seriously wrong without hearing his gentle, friendly, supportive voice. I know it's been hard for all of us, but I promise you he will be back soon. I hope you all have a wonderful time doing whatever you do across whatever time period you listen to this in. That could be in the far future, or it could be in the past if you had some sort of time travel machine that I'm not yet aware of. But why would I know about time travel machines before everyone else, right? I wouldn't. I'm not saying that to imply that I do secretly know. I really don't. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Sean is sending a coded message that he's known about time machines for a long time that are real. And that is emphatically not what I'm saying. No, I don't know anything about time machines. And if it comes out in the future that there was time machines at this time, that was just the speculation of a science fiction writing kind of rambling podcast person. It's not some sort of cryptic confession. See, I don't think I would have went this far if Aaron had been here to tether me down, to keep this bit contained. I don't know that I would have went through all that. So I'm looking forward to Aaron being back as well, too. Have a good week, everyone. I hope you're well. See you soon. Bye-bye. Seriously? Seriously? Wrong.